0: Hi, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Robbins. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Alan K. Davis on the show for a two-part series on psychedelics. Dr. Alan K. Davis is an assistant professor of social work at The Ohio State University which I have to say is very hard for me to even say, I choked on it the first time, and an adjunct adjunct assistant professor in the Psychedelic Research Unit at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Davis's clinical experience includes working with people diagnosed with trauma-based psychological problems such as addiction, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. His clinical expertise includes providing evidence-based treatments such as motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and psilocybin assisted psychotherapy. Consistent with his clinical interests, his research interests and expertise focus on contributing to the knowledge of and ability to help those suffering with substance use and mental health problems, understanding how to improve clinical outcomes through examining new treatments, and developing ways to conceptualize substance use and mental health problems through a strength-based approach. Psychedelic research focuses on clinical trials with psilocybin for people with depression and exploring psychological mechanisms by which psilocybin improves mental health and functioning. Upcoming studies include exploring the use of short-acting psychedelics in laboratory and naturalistic settings with assessing the application of psychedelics in vulnerable populations, including people of color who have experienced racial trauma and native Spanish-speaking individuals. Wow, that was a mouthful. But I'm, I'm so excited to have you on because I've been following some of the research on psychedelics and I'm just fascinated by it. So I'm excited to have sort of my own opportunity to ask an expert all the questions that I have. So welcome today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to yeah, have a great conversation about these topics.
0: So tell me a little bit about the history of psychedelics and how they've sort of woven in and out of our um, you know, of of history over the period of the last, I mean, really for a long time, but really the last, you know, 50 or 60 years.
1: Yes, the the recent past of the last 50 or 60 years has seen some fluctuations in our cultural uh, interests and acceptability of psychedelics. Of course, as you alluded to just a moment ago, there's a much longer and richer history of the use of psychedelics in uh, a variety of uh, different indigenous cultures. And so, you know, where they spent you know, thousands of years working with these medicines to both uh, help individuals who are suffering as well as to explore uh, death and dying and consciousness and connection to uh, the spirit world. And so um, more recently, though, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was a pretty strong interest in Western medicine in uh, utilizing these medicines as catalysts for change to help people who had addiction, primarily uh, alcohol use problems, and then as well to look at things like end-of-life distress uh, for people who were terminally ill. Um, and then that all pretty much came to a halt in the early 1970s with the uh, Controlled Substance Act and the demoralization and, and, and stigmatization of these, of these medicines. Um, that process unfolded in part as a reaction to uh, the hippie counterculture of the 1960s who began to experiment with these um, substances as a way to explore their own consciousness and as a way to connect with others and the government uh, in maybe the uh, in the least um, cynical of ways uh, tried to you know curtail what they may be perceived as as, Uh, a a downside of people experimenting with substances for which they really didn't have much information and they didn't know. Um, But of course there's a lot more nefarious uh, 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 things that have come out uh, after the fact, you know, in the last, in the last decade about that time and and about how they were really trying to, uh, you know, clamp down on what, what they saw as a, as a, as a potential danger to the status quo. Um, Having a bunch of free thinking individuals in a culture, you know, creates a lot of, interesting challenges when you're trying to get people to pay their taxes.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: So more recently, you know, that, that research kind of, and and more recently in the early uh, 1990s and, and really slow through the the 1990s and early 2000s, um, psychedelic research was started up again, really with the intention of trying to uh, re-legitimize the, use of these medicines in psychiatry and psychology. And I think that it's been a slow process that is now seeing the fruits of that labor.
0: And so when you're talking about psychedelics, can you talk about specifically what kind of class you're referring to? Because I know there's a lot of sort of new research out there on psychedelics, but also on alternative forms of treatment for mental illness. Mm like ketamine and things along those lines that aren't psychedelics as far as I understand it, but are new treatment options for people?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the interesting thing about substances in general is that there are, I think, very few, especially when we're talking about uh, substances that are traditionally thought of as recreational substances in that kind of framework, There's uh, most of them have kind of different components. And so when, when we use the word psychedelic, there are several substances that are captured within that uh, uh, name that actually have psychedelic like properties and also non psychedelic like properties. And so, for example, ketamine is one of those, it's technically a dissociative anesthetic drug that at certain doses produces certain aspects that are uh, considered psychedelic. And that's different than something, for example, like psilocybin, that, you know, is pretty well kind of couched within the landscape of psychedelic substance, Um, or like MDMA, which is a little bit psychedelic, uh, depending on the dose, and a little bit not psychedelic um, in terms of the type of effects it has. And and all of that really does, you know, at some level come down to uh, two things. One, the different ways in which that interacts with different uh, neurotransmitters in the brain. Uh, And some of these substances have primary action or even secondary action within a certain type of neurotransmitter. And then some of them have other effects, other different parts of the brain that, that, that kind of create these different subjective effects. So not only do you have maybe differences in the way these different molecules interact in the brain, but you have differences in the way that someone might subjectively experience that substance. And some of those are very much kind of quote-unquote, psychedelic-like uh, in their subjective effects. And some of them might be a little bit different depending on uh, which substance it is.
0: So can you speak a little to... So we have MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, and 5-MeO-DMT mm-hmm. are sort of the four that I kind of wanted to touch on. Can you just give us like a little bit of... Uh, what exactly we're talking about here for people who are new to all of this and don't necessarily even know what MDMA or psilocybin is, mm-hmm. and some of what that would look like um, in term in in a person having the experience. Yeah. I know we're going to talk also later cl- more clinically as well, but...
1: So I'll start off with uh, psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT, because out of those four substances that you mentioned, those two are what we would consider a classic psychedelic, um, both both in terms of their uh, neurochemistry, how they act in the brain, as well as in their subjective effect, and meaning how people experience those substances. The, the primary difference between psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT is in part where it comes from. Um, so both can be produced synthetically, meaning you can make it in a laboratory setting. A chemist could kind of whip up a batch of psilocybin or 5 dmt if they had the proper legal authorization to do so. Um, mm-hmm. Or, uh, but,
0: Don't do this at home, don't <laughs> right, try this at home.
1: Exactly, we're not endorsing that. Um, uh, but they both, in the natural environment, come from different places. So psilocybin comes from a variety of different types of mushrooms, um, and 5 meo dmt comes from, uh, primarily it can come in the variety of uh, toad venom, uh, also from a variety of different other types of plants um, in the natural environment. And so they come from different places, but they do contain kind of a primary uh, molecular structure called dimethyltryptamine. And that primary kind of molecular structure uh, uh, of the substances uh, kind of acts similarly in the brain. Uh, Now there are some differences. So big difference is the time course. 5-MeO-DMT is a very potent, very fast-acting psychedelic. It's usually consumed uh, by inhalation or smoking it. And because of that route of administration and because of how potent it is, the experience is very quick to start and it lasts a very short amount of time comparatively. So a typical 5-MeO DMT experience is in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the dose and and, and some other factors, uh, compared to psilocybin, which uh, when it's consumed orally by a capsule or even you know eating mushrooms, um, that experience is going to last anywhere between four and six hours, depending on the dose um, and the potency of, the, of the, either the mushrooms or, um, or the synthetic variety. So, uh, but both of them, because they, you know, regardless of how you consume it or, or, or um, where you get it from, both of those substances at their core, molecularly, have this dimethyltreptamine um, base molecule. And that is what kind of is similar in terms of how that starts to interact with your neurochemistry. And of course, there are then some similarities in terms of some of the acute subjective effects. There's also a lot of differences, but they, they tend to both bring about this mystical type experience uh, for for many people who have had uh, these, these substances. And And scientifically, when we've compared, you know, when we give people questionnaires and ask them to rate the level of this mystical experience. And and, a mystical experience can be a variety of things. What we mean by that in psychedelic research is some kind of connection to uh, the universe, or to a god, or a god of one's understanding, or to some type of unitive, universal expression of of something spiritual. Um, It also is difficult to describe in words. Um, And so when we ask people who've had psilocybin experiences to rate the level of mystical experience, and we ask people the 5-MeO-DMT to rate that, um, they're they're equivalent statistically between people who have really high doses of of psilocybin and people who have kind of a typical dose of 5-MeO-DMT. And so what that tells us is at least there's some overlap in in this experience. um, Mm -hmm. So
0: you're really looking at the experience. Correct. That the subject that the person has.
1: Yes. And we've also, there is some evidence from, from uh, neurochemistry that it also acts on similar receptors in the brain. That there, there are, you know, this, the 5-HT system, which is the serotonin system, which is the system that, you know, most classic psychedelics have been shown to, to um, act upon, uh, that both of these molecules act on that system as a kind of primary place of action in the brain. Um, and that's different than some of the other molecules that you mentioned. So MDMA, for example, um, is, you know, it's considered an intactogen or a, a substance that, that in part has, uh, some psychedelic effects. There is some, not only at the neurochemistry level where it acts on the serotonin system, similar to these other psychedelics, it also acts on the dopamine system. You know, there is a, there's a methamphetamine, you know, piece of this molecule that is kind of energizing and brings about, you know, a different kind of experience into that process. Uh, so if you think about it kind of as like proportions, or you think of it like a, like a Venn diagram, where there's like a, a piece that's accounted for by one part of the molecule and a piece that's accounted for by the other, um, MDMA kind of has this dual experience that's possible where people can feel, you know, disinhibited, they can feel where, you know, more open to uh, talking and more open to sharing. Um, But they also can have psychedelic like experiences in that place where they might have, you know, a connection to some kind of new information or new uh, experience. And some people might even experience that connection as spiritual. Um, But it doesn't necessarily have the same intensity of mystical experience, for example, as a classic psychedelic, that's really acting on that part of the brain primarily. Um, it's one of the reasons why for MDMA, you know, this opening and this feeling more comfortable and disinhibited, that was one of the reasons why in the 1970s, it was used pretty um, readily as an adjunct to psychotherapy. Before the research got, you know, shut down, uh, therapists and psychiatrists had already really discovered this, that it really helped to facilitate people's openness in psychotherapy, uh, primarily in couples work. You know, they found that Mm. couples who would have MDMA in a therapy session were better able to communicate and dig in and work on on their problems, and so unfortunately, you know, with MDMA that didn't get scheduled uh, and maybe legal until the mid '80s, and so uh, that really kind of brought all of that to a halt. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons why to pursue it, more, you know, now as well. So not only is it possible that classic psychedelics, you know, from the research in the '50s and '60s, we found that you know there might be reason to pursue this again, but MDMA had a a little bit of a different trajectory, but the same outcome, which is you know once it once it got out into the recreational sphere and the parties, the government came in and said no, you know this isn't okay. Um, but but more recently, they've been trying to re-legitimize its use as an adjunct to therapy.
0: And and the term psychedelic means what exactly? That it it leads to some sort of mystical experience? Is that?
1: So the, um, there's a couple different, you know, words that are thrown around. Psychedelic, I think kind of, you know, when you look at the root of the word, it means mind manifesting. So this kind of manifesting um, of of consciousness of mind in a new in a, in a way that is kind of bringing people into the core of of what their consciousness is. Um, I think that's how many people might interpret that word. Um, the, the the class of substances that are kind of contained within that category um, at different times have been called different things. There's still some people who refer to them as hallucinogens. Uh, meaning, you know, creating, you know, false perceptions, uh, which is kind of mm-hmm. like almost like a stigmatized way of thinking about it, that this substance mm-hmm. is kind of re- it's a, like a reductionistic way of looking at it. Um, whereas the word psychedelic, I think, has m- this more of a kind of person-centered approach to like what they might experience as part of that uh, subjective effect of, of, these, of these substances. Um, the way that I think we mean it is not necessarily that it, it always creates a mystical experiences. There's a lot of people who don't have mystical experiences. Um, you know, there's anywhere between a third and a half or more um, of people who report having experienced these different substances will will at least on questionnaires, you know, not endorse having mystical experiences. So by no means do they automatically lead to that. And and there's a lot of reasons why that might be. Um, but they certainly mm-hmm. seem to in the right in the right settings and in the and for many people who've had them, they do. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I, I was reading Michael Pollan's book, which I know has brought so how to change your mind, which I know has brought so much attention mm-hmm. to this research. And you know, of course, one of the things that he talked about, and I'm sure, that, you know, that you've talked about in your meetings and everything, is the suggestib- just the suggest is the suggestibility of a mystical experience. Mm-hmm enough to allow for a mystical experience. Um, and it's just, you know, the mind is just so fascinating in that way. Um,
1: it is pretty amazing that, you know, despite differences in culture and setting and, and gender and age and all of these different factors that, that are comprised in the different individuals who seek out or have had these experiences that, that, I would say at least a half or more, depending on all of those things, will have this this similar kind of experience that that seems to connect them to um, something universal, something familiar, something that seems true and real in a way that is more so than their everyday reality. And I think that it's not surprising that when people have those kinds of experiences, Frankly, regardless of whether there's psychedelic involved, I mean, we've done some recent research that has shown that people have these experiences. People have mystical experiences all the time without mm-hmm. the aid of a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we compare the features of these non-psychedelic mystical experiences to psychedelic occasion mystical experiences, almost in all of the different ways we've compared them, they're similar. Um, which tells us that that there's actually probably more so something that's similar about humans and the way that we're having these experiences, maybe in in what we're able to access in our own consciousness, that is what's universal. And just there's different ways of reaching that. There's some people who reach that naturally, that it just happens um, maybe spontaneously without them even looking for it. And then there's some people who have these experiences with, you know, the aid of a psychedelic. And there's some people who stitch us out in meditation and yoga Mm -hmm. and breath work. There's a variety of different ways that people have found these experiences that um, that may all be kind of a sign that this is actually something within us that we're accessing as opposed to something that something is doing to us.
0: Well, and you said, you know, it's interesting because people have described this sort of universal experience and it's the experience that, as I understand it, the experience of a psychedelic or mystical experience is becomes the feeling that we are all universal, right? We are all one. And I think that that's, what i've heard and what i've read when people have those experiences is they realize the whole interconnectedness of everything and that's really where a lot of the healing comes from and the power comes from is that you no longer see yourself as as a self with an ego but you see yourself as connected to a whole
1: i I think that's absolutely correct i think that that the one of the core features of this mystical state is this interconnection. And, and just thinking about the last, you know, 100 or 200 years, especially in Western civilization, we've gone pretty far the other direction. You know, we've gone in the direction of disconnection and isolation and, and to the point of, of, of radical independence that has, I think, discounted our natural human state of wanting to connect, wanting to be mm-hmm. part of community, wanting to be con- close to others and to develop relationships. And so it's not a surprise to me at all that as as this kind of radical independence has been sought in Western civilization and, and, and progressed and um, that we've also seen at the same time in that disconnected state, we've seen a rise of mental health problems. We've seen an increase in depression, an increase in anxiety, an increase in substance use disorders. And, and I think that those things are connected. I think that these are problems of disconnection. And so if it is, if that's true, that there are problems of disconnection, problems of isolation, then it makes sense to me that a, a substance or an experience that brings that back together, that reconnects one to themselves and to the universe or to their communities, or or even just for a, a moment reminds them that they are loved and connected and, and that they can pursue that. And then if there's not something wrong with that, I think that that is, in and of itself, one of the ways that these substances can heal.
0: Well, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I see it in my practice all the time as people coming in and they're so disconnected. They're disconnected from themselves. They're disconnected from their communities. They're disconnected from their families that they're living in. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all so disconnected. And so I think that that's beautifully said is that this, this becomes almost like a catalyst for that sense of connection. But you don't have to have that experience to start connecting in ways that help to alleviate some of the feelings of isolation and anxiety. You can do that today by just picking up the phone, calling a friend you haven't spoken to, not texting, calling, (laughs) (laughs) meeting someone for coffee, right? There's simple things, not to simplify this because it's obviously complicated because if it wasn't, more people would be doing it. But I do think On some level, we've overcomplicated.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that's pretty clear from most of the mental health literature that I'm familiar with is that social connections are a protective factor. They are a healing agent in not only the manifestation of a mental health problem, but also in the recovery from one. And so one of the primary domains that, that can be benefited from is creating more social connection, having people that you feel like you can trust, that you can depend upon, but also just people who you can interact with. These don't have to be connections where you're talking about your problems. They can be, and that's great and wonderful. But just having people that you can go spend time um, with and, and, and connect to, that in of itself might be sufficient to at least um, reconnect you into a process of, of, of mental health and or just kind of sustaining uh, health that you already have or developing it further. You know, one of the interesting things about psychedelics and these, these types of experiences are that they're not just, I think, for people who have mental health problems. I mean, certainly there is a medical reason to want to try to bring, you know, relief to people who are suffering. There's a lot of people who, you know, also may be mentally healthy, but deserve to kind of pursue their own understanding of their consciousness and to pursue what it means to be, you know, even better than where they are now. And so Mm -hmm. there is a place, I think, for these types of experiences, um, for for those types of individuals.
0: Yeah, what I always say in therapy is, come for the crisis, stay for the growth. <laughs> you know, right? Like the crisis is usually what brings someone to therapy, but if they can stay long enough, work through that crisis, then there's really major opportunities for growth. And it sounds like you're talking about something similar. How do people, so when you're dosing in the off in your research, you're micro dosing this right? Like it's very specific and you know the exact amount that someone's getting, I'm assuming, and how long that's going to last and, versus people who are just doing it out um, for recreational use.
1: Yeah, that is uh, so part of that is for sure accurate. We are measuring, we're using synthetic versions of these molecules. So we know exactly what the purity is. We know exactly what the dose is. In fact, we dose it usually by weight. So it's actually dosed specifically to that individual. Um, But I would distinguish that from the term microdosing because microdosing has kind of become its own thing in culture more recently. And that really pertains to the idea of using very, very small uh, not necessarily in size, although it, it is also in size usually, uh, but very, very small sub threshold doses of psychedelics that are actually, if it's used in that way, are actually supposed to be kind of unperceivable or below the levels of perception. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're using very specific doses of psychedelics that we can measure very um, specifically, but we're actually using very, I would say, high doses of psychedelics. In fact, most of the gotcha. doses that we're providing to people, uh, and specifically this would be with psilocybin, um, the doses are, are are usually higher than what people would find in a recreational setting. Now, certainly some people in recreational settings do consume very high doses of psychedelics, um, but the average person finding a recreational dose of psilocybin is probably going to find a dose that is smaller than what we're providing in A very structured therapeutic research environment.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So one more question, because we're going to wrap up today. And then next week, we're going to pick up and talk about, you're going to kind of walk me through what this looks like in a clinical setting. (laughs) But what are, you alluded to some of them before, but can you kind of list out what are the components of a mystical experience specifically? I think there's like seven or eight of them. Is that...
1: Yeah, so there's, there's really kind of four, I would say, kind of large factors, uh, and there's kind of sub-factors on some of those, but, but there's really four factors that we measure to basically understand whether or not someone has had a mystical experience. And in order to qualify as having a complete mystical experience, you usually have to have a certain intensity of each of those four factors. So the first factor, you know, probably not um, surprisingly, uh, is called the mystical factor, Um, The mystical factor is essentially what we've uh, primarily described, which is, you know, these feelings of uh, unity, feelings of um, uh, some kind of connection to God or or God of one's understanding. Um, I'm going to just share with you, if I could, a couple of these items. So like one item on the mystical factor would be uh, experience of pure being or pure awareness. Uh, or mm-hmm. experience of the fusion of your personal self into a larger whole, uh, experience of unity with ultimate reality. So this, this first factor of the mystical experience is really about this connection to something bigger or kind of more universal than your day-to-day um, life may have revealed. Um, there is kind of a piece of that that is about uh, specifically referenced to spirituality. So, so one item on that mystical factor is feeling that you've experienced something profoundly sacred and holy or having a sense of reverence or sense of being at a spiritual height. And so that factor is, is encapsulated by all of those different features. The second one is a positive mood. So there is also, in addition to that, this factor of things like experience of amazement or feeling uh, peace and tranquil or feeling um, ecstatic, a sense of awe or awesomeness. Uh, feelings of joy, so so essentially deeply felt positive experiences that might come along with that sense of reverence or or sacredness. The third factor is what we call transcendence of time and space. So this feature really taps into. Uh, one's loss of a sense of time or, or their usual sense of space uh, or their usual awareness of where they are in the world, they might kind of lose sense of, you know, their body, for example. They might feel in that kind of connection to the universe that, that it's beyond a measurable um, time or location there's um, a sense that it's kind of beyond past or future, that there's this kind of goes into this like universal space of, of, of everything and also nothing, right, at the same time. Um, and then the fourth factor is what we call ineffability. And that really just speaks to the difficult nature of actually putting all of that into words. And so mm-hmm. uh, having a sense that it can't be described adequately in words, feeling that they can't do justice to their experience by trying to put some kind of language to it, uh, or feeling that it would be difficult to communicate this to others who've not had similar experiences. So each of those four features are essentially kind of what we have been measuring as the mystical experience. Now this is by no means necessarily captured for everyone, like there, I think there are, this is just how we've created, you know, a measurement of this to use, you know, scientifically but I by no means mean to um, reduce, you know, a mystical experience that might actually include other features that we just don't happen to ask about in this. measure. Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. important because a lot of people have, even in a research setting, even with this measure, which we've kind of created to be psychometrically valid and reliable and, you know, scientific. um, There's a lot of people who have different, they don't, they don't experience their, their their experience by even these words that we've created, you know? So I think, Hmm. I think, definition of being human and, you know, again, if a a whole factor of this scale is that we can't describe it in words and somehow we still think that we can have a measure of it that uses words to to make people, you know, to have people make sense of it, Mm -hmm. like, you know, yeah, at some point it gets a little bit um, confusing, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, this was so fascinating and helpful to me. Um, So... We are going to pick up next week, um, but I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today and for helping um, myself and my listeners understand this new new old realm that we're entering into.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Have a great day. You too,
1: bye-bye.
0: Thanks. Like what you heard today and wanna hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.